These are statistics from uh, domesticviolencestatistics.org. Every nine seconds in the U.S., a woman is assaulted or beaten. Around the world, at least one in every three women has been beaten, coerced into sex, or otherwise abused during her lifetime. Most often, the abuser is a member of her own family. Domestic violence is the leading cause of injury to women, more than car accidents, muggings, and rapes combined. And studies show that uh, 10 million children witness, in some form, domestic violence annually. There's a conference at Southern Utah University that's going to address some of these matters. It's called Men, Women, and Violence. Everyone Matters. This is in partnership with Community Engagement Center and Center for Women and Families at Southern Utah University. It'll be happening on the Hunter Conference Center at SEU campus on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. And we're going to be talking with the the two keynote speakers. We bring in Michelle Weldon, who's an award-winning journalist, author of a... uh, Critically acclaimed memoir, I Closed My Eyes, Revelations of a Battered Woman. Uh, She teaches at uh, Medill School of uh, Journalism at Northwestern University. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We appreciate you uh, being on. We're going to be joined as well, uh, I believe, by Dr. Uh, Catherine Richardson. Uh, She's Assistant Professor of Social Work at uh, University of Victoria. And uh, her keynote speech, What We Already Know and Do, Conversations About Dignity and Responses to uh, Violence. And, uh, by the way, the, the uh, keynote um, from uh, uh, Michelle Weldon um, is, uh, I'm trying to pull this up here, the agenda, the uh, keynote. There she is, one of us, the myths of domestic violence. I wonder, uh, to begin, Michelle Weldon, do you have your book with you? Um, I'd love to have you uh, read just a page and a half here. This uh, sort of gets us dramatically into into your story. Uh, this is just uh, from page five. I closed my eyes. Okay. And uh, over through the half of page six uh, to the the uh, the words in in italics. Okay. And I don't know which. Uh, if there've been two reprints, so. Um... Oh, okay. So uh, this is just uh, from the the opening chapter of, of the book uh, from. Okay. Part one, the first first chapter. Yes, yes. Okay. I closed my eyes because I knew what was coming. It was always the same. The air just before, thick with rage, red ripe with anger. I never watched when his hand flew toward me. I only waited for the sound of the strike. Shoulders clenched, neck tight, as if all I was waiting for was a balloon popping or the brief shrill cry when a child falls from a bike outstretched hands, scraping cement. And when it came, I never knew where his hand went first, which way his fingers grasped me, which arm sent me to the floor. I could never answer the questions properly, the ones that I asked myself, only myself. I could only feel the throbbing in the stings like battery-powered flashes across my face, sometimes my chest, an arm, a shoulder. And I mentally mapped the argument in bruises and splits of skin, the blood warm and wet, my cheeks puffing up to apologize like airbags upon collision, the truth suffocating within me. In 12 years together, including nine years of marriage, there were repeated split-second eternities when the man who was my husband was someone I did not know. And in those crimson flashes before each time he struck, I always remembered his eyes before I closed my own. Cold blue, pale as stone, the pupils wide, black chasms, his dark eyebrow arrows aimed at my face, His teeth gripped hard to his mission. And before I closed my eyes, I held my breath, knowing that sanity does not hold court here. With my own eyes closed, the image of his eyes stayed before me in the darkness, like the square image of a television screen or the fading imprint of a lamp's white-hot bulb across the inside of your eyelids when you first surrender to sleep. In my darkness, I was swimming underwater without sound and without weight, bodiless, soulless, lost unable to breathe or speak or remember. And as soon as the sound came, I felt a relief in the distant place where he struck, for there was no more need to recoil, only recover. This was the end, not the beginning of it all. There was no more reason to be afraid, today, ever. This has to be the last. This can't happen again. The stinging radiating through my body reminded me that all I had to do now was heal. A different movie was playing, a slower soundtrack with a woman's soothing voice. I would cry without sound at first, the hole made so vacuous, so unforgivably hollow, that the loudest knell could not penetrate the emptiness. I was already beyond it. I had flown past and above and could no longer be touched. You didn't get me. 
My eyes were closed. It didn't count. It's Michelle Weldon reading from her uh, acclaimed memoir, I Closed My Eyes. Uh, and uh, in your book, there's uh, you, you continue this this metaphor. We could call it closing your eyes, opening your eyes. We'll talk about that. Three uh, parts of your book: getting there, getting out, and getting better. And uh, we bring in now uh, Catherine Richardson, assistant professor, at the University of Victoria, in the School of Social Work. Uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Let's uh, maybe from both of you get the scope of the problem. I, I quote some statistics at the top of the uh, program. Every nine seconds, the U.S. woman is assaulted or beaten. Domestic violence, leading cause of injury to women. More than car accidents, muggings, and rapes combined. Um, I wonder, is is the problem getting worse or getting getting better? Well, this is, this is Catherine speaking. And, of course, I'm up in Canada, and I've been involved in social service work for at least 20 years now. And a lot of the work that I do is overlapping with child protection work. And I'm really sad to say that it does seem like things are getting worse, even though most of the people that I meet in the helping professions are uh, actually very well-intentioned and trying to do good work. I just think there are a lot of systemic challenges um, around policies and laws, for example, that um, are really complicating it and making life less safe for women. Hmm. We'll talk about this as we go along, at what, what our response as society and, and uh, government uh, should be. I wonder, the same question, Michelle Weldon, as you, you talk to women, I'm sure women respond to your memoir and, and as you speak in these conferences, uh, respond to your experiences. Do you, do you sense that uh, we're at the same place, uh, getting worse, getting better? Well, I think it's shifting. I think there's more women reporting because there is a um, an increased awareness that it isn't um, the the victim's fault, and the the shame and the stigma is lessening. So I think more people are reporting. The actual numbers of um, domestic deaths and murders um, of intimate partners has decreased, but there are some alarming pockets of. Um, you know, of increase, including 13 to 17-year-old um, women, and including um, in the um, gay community, including some um, pockets of, um, like, the Amish and in rural communities and in, um, you know, specific ethnicities. So I think it's a, an ever-shifting problem that um, I hope we can tackle and alleviate uh, but I don't know if we can ever eradicate. You said you you think that, uh, that maybe the, some of the stigma is is wearing off, maybe maybe lessening. Is that why a lot of women don't report that 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 stigma? Well, that I mean, Catherine can also speak to that's one of the reasons. But there's also quite practically, um, you know, a, a woman may have been threatened by her partner that if you report, I will. Kill you. I mean, at the at the um, lesser end, they will. I will harm the children. I will harm the pets. I will harm your family. I will cut you off financially. I will cut you off emotionally. I will tell everyone you're crazy. I will deny what you've done. I mean, there are so many reasons that when someone asks the question, "Why doesn't she just leave?" and I say, "Well, a million reasons why she doesn't just leave." What we have to do as a, as a culture and society and support is to help women to be able to leave, hmm. uh, I know, not just uh, insist upon it. Yes, yeah, we'll follow up on that. Um, Catherine Richardson, I, I believe you have to leave us uh, soon. I wonder, uh, any any oh, yeah. uh, any final words, especially on your uh, keynote, what we already know and do, conversations about dignity and responses to violence. Oh, okay, I just want to add briefly to what Michelle was saying. Um, I, I agree with everything she said, and I think one of the problems is uh, or one of the realities, is that women know that mostly when they report violence, their life gets less safe, not more safe. And, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons for that. So until really things shift where communities are able to give a really coordinated, positive social response, um, it, won't continue, it won't be attractive to uh, disclose violence and just... Uh, really open the floodgates for the kinds of things 
that Michelle was talking about. Um, so in terms of my keynote, yeah, I'm very, really happy to come and share some of uh, my work. I work with a, a number of folks here at an institute called the Center for Response-Based Practice. And um, my colleagues and I over the past, um, uh, over a decade at least, have been evolving uh, a way of working um, clinically, like therapeutically, but also more socially and in communities to uh, create safety for victims of violence and to provide uh, healing opportunities through therapeutic conversation. And the work is uh, just amazingly simple. It's based on acknowledging human dignity and all the things that um, a person who's been harmed by violence, all the things that they already know and do and believe and value things they do to try to keep themselves safe um, to preserve their dignity and to try to keep um, loved ones safe as well often often children so we have a, a kind of way of talking with people that um, begins with setting up some safety and then eliciting the events so um, truly important important to get accurate accounts of interaction who is doing what to whom and how is the other person responding and that often includes how they resist violence and the topic of women's resistance or resistance of any kind of uh, oppressed group has really been left out of the psychological literature um, which is really strange because we know that people around the world have been uh, resisting oppression uh, you know, for decades and centuries and millennia, but yet that awareness was overlooked um, in much of the psychology field. So then we asked the person to tell us uh, who knows about the violence or who they told, how did they decide to tell that person, and then what happens? Um, what kinds of responses and people do they have to deal with after they have disclosed? So what we find often are women who are already living in quite unsafe circumstances, having to manage a whole bunch of professionals and uh, maybe family and friends and people that may be judging them because, as Michelle said, there's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of stigma and there's built-in bias about um, mm. how we handle the field of violence. So women are often blamed for men, men's violence. So by getting accurate accounts, we can kind of break through that bias and try to work with systems and community to really create safety for women and children. And it's amazing um, the curative and healing power of justice. And so when we can create that for people uh, and keep them safe, uh, whatever that means, um, then we're helping to reduce violence in the future, but also make it more likely that... Um, Women will um, stand up for themselves, go to authorities, speak out and say this is wrong and pave the way for younger generations of women. But until we uh, can remove all those barriers um, to women doing that, then it just makes sense that, that women wouldn't want to report violence. So I'll take a breath and I'll let you talk. Okay, uh, Catherine Richardson, I believe I believe you have to go, and we're going to bring in, I believe, um, um, Alan Wade. Alan, are you there? Yes, I am. And I believe you you work with uh, Catherine Richardson. Some of these I issues. do. Um, and you understand you're her son. I'm her son. Yeah. It, her Sub, sub. Okay. You're sub. Okay. Well, I'd understood so. through the through the intercom that. Uh, okay. So sub Thank substitute. You. All right. Well, we're, we're going to bring Alan Wade in and uh, talk more with uh, Michelle Weldon as well. And you are welcome to join the conversation at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Perhaps you have an experience uh, that you'd like to share, which maybe help other people. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're going to take a brief break back. Uh, we're previewing, after this, we're previewing a conference at uh, Southern Utah University, Men, Women, and Violence, Everyone Matters. It's happening Wednesday and Thursday on the Southern Utah University campus. Waste not.
Studies show leaking faucets and toilets account for as much as 14% of all indoor water use. That's 10 gallons per person per day. By replacing an old toilet with a new model, the typical household can save up to 21,000 gallons of water per year. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. And support for Public Utah Public Radio is provided by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts. Celebrating 20 years this season with the unique vocal sounds of Bobby McFerrin. Tomorrow and Wednesday at 7.30, ticket information is at ellenecclestheater.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about domestic violence on the program today. There's a conference going to treat this important issue. That's at Southern Utah University, and it's happening on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. And the conference is titled Men, Women, and Violence, Everyone Matters. It's happening Wednesday and Thursday. It's in partnership with the Community Engagement Center and the Center for Women and Families there at Southern Utah University. And it's all happening in the Hunter Center uh, there on the SUU campus. Uh, one of the keynote speakers is Michelle Weldon. She's author of a critically acclaimed memoir, I Closed My Eyes, Revelations of a Battered Woman. She teaches at the uh, Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, and we uh, bring in as well Alan Wade, who is at... Uh, Alan Wade, are you at the University of Victoria as well? Uh, I'm in private practice. You're in private practice. And okay. I'm at the university as well, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Michelle Weldon, I, I want to continue with uh, your story. We heard uh, the gripping uh, part of the opening of, of your book, I Closed My Eyes. That's the, this is the title of the, uh, of the book. And interspersed throughout uh, the book, there, there are these cards that you received from your, from your former husband, uh, which just, uh, they're, they're very powerful because they're so loving and so... <laughs> Uh, so romantic, and th- th- this is interspersed with your story of of, of how he uh, abused you, and I guess that illustrates some important points. Well, um, you know, not to be su- too simplistic about it, but there is a, a Jekyll Hyde dichotomy about many um, abusers who tend to be highly charismatic and and convincing, which is, um, you know, when when they gain control and and power, and then they're trying to convince you that. Um, you know, the single act of violence was an aberration until you, you know, connect all the dots. Um, you know, an interesting thing, after I wrote the book, I, I um, left the marriage in 1995, was divorced in 96, and this book came out in 99. So I've had, you know, quite a, a different and productive life since then. But my friends, my male friends who read the book and read those letters said, I can't believe you fell for the letters. They're so transparent and they're so saccharine and so hollow, and yet all my women friends would say, oh, those letters are just, I mean, who wouldn't? So there might be, you know, some gender uh, bias there and and who actually would even believe those kinds of um, accolades from a partner. You say in your book that um, the, the apologies are what imprisoned you. I wonder if you could expand on that. Right. Well, I was also in counseling, um, you know, with my former husband the entire time um, and, and talking openly about the violence and trying to address it in couples counseling, which is also, a, um, I found out later, a big mistake that it should be um, the individual, the perpetrator, should be in counseling alone because the dynamic tends to play out again in counseling. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, want to be a compassionate person, and you want to allow forgiveness, but, yeah, it did, it, it, it crippled me because I wanted to, you know, I'm a hopeful person, and I always thought I was smart enough. I thought I was able to handle this, and I never believed it was about me. That's another myth, myth that is perpetrated about victims of domestic violence that they have such low self-esteem that they don't feel they deserve any better. Every woman I've ever met has not, who has come forward about domestic violence has said that was not the case with her. I had no violence in my history whatsoever in my family of origin or anybody ever knew um, personally or my brothers in Mac this way or my father or, 
so it was so foreign to me that to me it seemed really simple then to solve. Um, and, and that the apologies were what shackled me to the hope that it could be different. Hmm. And and you're always, I guess, until you decide to get out, you're always thinking, well, th- th- I hope this will be the last time. Right. And it was also, um, you know, perpetuated by counselor's offices. I mean, we're in counseling for um, 10 years. And um, the last time, I think, um, and, you know, in, in different counselors in different states because we lived in three different places, um, and the approach was different in each counselor. Um, and I don't think anyone took it as seriously as one counselor who did, who said, the next time he does anything to you, get your children away from him. And that stuck in the back of my mind. Um, and I didn't act on it the, 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 um, that next time, but it, it stayed with me. And um, before the, la- the final act of violence, which prompted me to get an order of protection, we had been at the counselor's office two days before where he had talked about how well things were going. Hmm. And so that went over my head. This is so absurd. This is the rest of my life. There will be apologies and the cycle of, you know, explaining it to the counselor. Counselor say, try this. And um, I I said, you know, I, I refuse to sign my children up for this kind of a life and myself. So Hmm. that was what prompted me to act was actually, um, going to counseling. Let's bring in Alan Wade. Um, uh, brought up here a, a flyer of a uh, workshop you're going to be giving, it looks like, in, in April. And uh, by the way, uh, Alan Wade, uh, PhD in psychology from University of Victoria, research interests, nature of violence and resistance, social responses to victims and perpetrators of violence, connection between violence and language. Looks like in, the, in this workshop, you uh, you take a look at uh, response-based practice. We heard about that from uh, Catherine Richardson. And observation that victims invariably respond to and resist violence, the perpetrators take steps to conceal and suppress these acts of resistance. This is a, a kind of a dynamic that, that, that happens a lot. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and Michelle was alluding to some of that in her description, very vivid description. Um, you know, the people who perpetrate violence generally anticipate that the the person they're harming is going to resist in some way, shape, or form. So one of the reasons that uh, many men um, follow or put women under surveillance is because they have the sense that the woman may do something that they don't want them to do. One of the reasons many men apologize um, and make efforts to make it right or manipulate and further entrap the uh, victim, the woman in this case, is because they know the woman is is, uh, unhappy and uh, looking at leaving the circumstances. And, of course, um, you know, uh, professionals can become part of the overall pattern that enables and perpetuates the violence, as Michelle's pointing out. Yeah, and that's that's troubling. Michelle, you're you're saying that uh, this counseling, I guess, though well-meaning, was helped perpetrate this? Well, you know, and there are different kinds of counseling. You know, of course, as Alan could... Uh, attests are different kinds of counselors. This last counselor we went to was um, a, a Catholic priest. So there is, you know, <laughs> a whole other show about yeah. how um, religious groups um, treat violence in a marriage and, and you know, that, that what should be done to save the marriage and keep the family intact above all, um, above I- even individual safety. So there, there were... Um, definitely landmines in in that arrangement as he knew my husband my former husband very well and knew his family very well um so there was always that small talk at first um and i always thought was so completely absurd that you know we would be here in in his office and the rectory and you know with this huge physical and emotional uh crisis and he would be saying, well, how's so-and-so? Um, so there are different approaches um, and, and some that don't work very well. I want to ask you about this uh, idea of the Jekyll and Hyde. Um, and it seems like at some point um, in your, your situation, probably not unique in this, and that you have to ad- admit or accept on some basic level that um, the, the Mr. Hyde that your husband turned into, your ex-husband, 
uh, is the same same man as the the charming man that everyone else sees, and that and that you know can be very charming with you as well. Well, it creates such cognitive dissonance because you know you, you have all this self talk about I'm an intelligent person. How instinctively did I not see this, or how have I been manipulated to this? I mean, you know, I someone a, a, a stranger who's rude to me in line, I would say, you know, say excuse me. <laughs> but yet am unable to um, uh, justify in my mind how, this is, how I was unaware, how I, you know, didn't see the signs. Or, um, but th- then you have to get to a point, which, which I did, that I was completely manipulated and that, um, you know, it, it's not that I gave up control or relinquished control of, of my life. It's that um, you're groomed for that. I mean, it, it works in, you know, several different types of abuse, from child abuse to elder abuse. Mm-hmm. It um, really ceases to be about me and my willingness to be victimized. It's about the cunningness and the ability um, to manipulate and assert power from, you know, the perpetrator. You were very practiced in having uh, giving excuses to people. There, there's one very powerful senior at your sister-in-law's house. I think this is his right. his sister. You have a fat lip or something, and she she right. makes a joke. It's it's a, totally a joke to her because she can't fathom right. that her brother would do something like this. But she she makes a joke, and then you come up with an excuse. Right, and even in uh, you know my and uh, not just to her, but to. Several people, but there were f- uh, only a few times where um, the, the abuse was outwardly visible. I mean, abusers also take great care in, in um, giving marks in places that are not readily seen, you know, that you can cover up with clothes. They get, when they get really bold is when they give you a black eye. Mm-hmm. It's at, that's after years of being able to, to uh, be excused for it. Um, yeah, I mean, there were, I was in a pediatrician's office with my young children and, you know, had a fat lip and the doctor said, what happened? And I knew this was like a critical point. And I, I said, well, one of the boys threw, you know, a toy phone at me. And she later, when I, uh, you know, wrote my book and she was a big supporter, she said she was so mad at herself for not seeing through that because, you know, we were, um, you know, a seemingly happy couple in the community and went to her the local church and he was an attorney and I was a journalist and we were, you know, had these happy children. And she's like, why I didn't ask the next question? She was, you know, very upset. And she said it taught her a lesson that she should never make an assumption um, on, on the face that this couldn't happen to this woman. Hmm. Ellen Wade, I wonder if this uh, rings true with the research that you do. We, as a society, we do seems like make assumptions, and that, and, and maybe sometimes don't see signs that are right in front of us. Yeah, <clears throat> well, one of the thing that, things that Michelle's pointing out is that most perpetrators of violence are very careful to conceal uh, what are called early warning signs in the early part of the relationship. If you talk to um, women who have been abused, or even adults who, as children, were sexually abused. Typically, they'll tell you that at the beginning part of them knowing the person, the person took great care to put on the best face, to present themselves in a very loving and uh, coherent manner, Uh, maybe even express outrage at how previous partners had been abusive to a woman, for example, Uh, become great playmates and friends with the kids, and so on and so forth. So, um, unfortunately, a lot of the ways in which that happens has been largely overlooked. So, we end up saying to women, well, you know, you must have missed the early warning signs, when in fact, much of the time, the people who become violent take care not to give any early warning signs. So it's much more of a process of predatory entrapment, as Michelle is pointing out, than it is a process of people missing early warning signs. Mm. And in addition to that, uh, Michelle was talking about apologies, uh, and I understand gave some uh, uh, examples in her book, which I'm going to have to get. Uh, but, um, you know, apologies are socially very powerful events. We, we get trained as children, you know, your, your sister hits you over the head with a baseball bat and your parent comes running out in the backyard and says, you know, honey, say you're sorry. 
And then when your sister says she's sorry, then you know that your job is to accept the apology, even if you know she doesn't really mean she's sorry. So we get, we get kind of trained up to respond to apologies in a very uh, accepting kind of manner. You even see this happening on, on a large scale where uh, the church, for example, the Catholic Church is apologizing for um, allowing priests to molest children. So the apology is used essentially to dim public dissent uh, and to suppress victims' resistance in the case of wife assault. It's very difficult when a person apologizes to, to say to them, you know what, you don't mean a word of this. Uh, this is just a repetition of the same old pattern. We want to believe in a person. We want to believe that there's some sincerity involved. Hmm. Okay. And this is what you uh, this is what you came to, I, I think. You write this in your preface, Michelle Weldon. Uh, uh, that, I, absolutely. Um, and you're, you're so right, Alan. You're um, socialized to um, believe the best of another person. And think of the stakes, you know, in, in an intimate relationship in a marriage, and especially when there are children involved. The stakes are so high that, um, you know, to admit that this was not true, you know, it implodes your family. So to take that step to say, um, you know, I, I, I will not give you another chance, <laughs> I don't believe you, aside from the fact that, that socially that's not really acceptable, you know, I'll give him another chance or let him try again. He means so well. Or, um, you know, I was shunned from by his um, family, uh, you know, because of the steps I took and because I made it public. Um, so and, that, and that's the other part of this is that um, people say it's a private matter. And why did you have to tell people? Um, and I say, well, if some, a stranger rang your doorbell, you open the door and they punch you in the face, it, you'd call the police and it would be a crime. It doesn't matter if that person entered your house with a key. It's still a crime. Mm. <laughs> Just because you know the person doesn't make it okay. We're talking with Michelle Weldon, who's one of the keynote speakers at the Southern Utah University Women and Gender Studies Conference. It's called Men, Women, and Violence, Everyone Matters. It's happening Wednesday and Thursday on the SUU campus, in partnership with Community Engagement Center and Center for Women and Families at SUU. And Michelle Weldon is a, uh, an assistant professor, adjunct professor there at uh, Medill uh, School of Journalism at uh, Northwestern University author of several books, including the acclaimed I Closed My Eyes, Revelations of a Battered Woman. And we're also uh, talking with Alan Wade, who is with responsebasedpractice.com. You can find more information there. And he's associated with the University of Victoria in British Columbia. Uh, His colleague, Catherine Richardson, is uh, coming uh, as the other keynote speaker. Several events, and that's happening Wednesday and Thursday find more about that at suu.edu slash women and gender studies. And uh, we'll have more, including uh, how Michelle Weldon got out of uh, her abusive relationship. It's a dangerous time, understand, for uh, for many women. And uh, and healing, healing process, very, very important. We'll talk about that with uh, Michelle Weldon and Alan Wade following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. Did you know that athletic trainers are healthcare providers who are licensed and certified in 49 of the 50 states? In addition to caring for athletes, they help the military and other physically demanding industries. Athletic trainers prevent injuries and help return people back to work or the playing field if they do get hurt. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Support for Utah Public Radio is also provided by the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra performing Bach's Mass in B Minor this Saturday at the USU Performance Hall in Logan. Information is at americanfestivalchorus.org. I'm Tom Williams. You're listening to Access Utah. Every nine seconds in the U.S., a woman is assaulted or beaten. These are statistics from domesticviolencestatistics.org. Domestic violence is the leading cause of injury to women, more than car accidents, muggings, and rapes combined. And nearly one in five teenage girls who've been in a relationship said a boyfriend threatened violence or self-harm if presented with a breakup. 
These important issues are being treated at a conference at Southern Utah University happening this week on Wednesday and Thursday. We're previewing that conference with keynote speaker Michelle Weldon, who's an award-winning journalist, author of several books, including I Closed My Eyes, Revelations of a Battered Woman. We're also talking with Alan Wade, who is with ResponseBasedPractice.com and associated with the University of Victoria in British Columbia. And you're welcome to join this conversation. We have another 15 minutes, 1-800-826-1495 with your question or comment, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, we'd especially uh, value your your experience. Uh, perhaps could help other people. UPRAccess at gmail dot com is the other way you can uh, join us. UPRAccess at uh, gmail uh, dot com. I wonder, Michelle Weldon, you're you're going to be talking about myths of domestic violence. What are you've mentioned one or two? What are what are some other myths that you want people to know? Well, the largest myth is that it 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 happens to others. Those kinds of women, however you defined those kinds, uh, you know, but there's a ubiquitousness about um, domestic violence that crosses all age, gender, race, socioeconomic, geographic, ideological backgrounds, and that's that's the largest myth, and from there um, perpetuates a lot of dangerous mythology. And the other is that, um, as I said, you know, women invite it or cause it, um, and that um, it, it can be changed at will, and that it isn't. Uh, another myth is that it isn't um, worth all of our efforts to um, invade this couple's privacy. When actually, it totally is because it changes the nature of the children's identity and you know interactions across all relationships. And you know, it, you've discussed the numbers of how pervasive. This is, and you know, in, in our society, and that affects all our uh, relationships and all our behaviors. It affects crime. It affects um, education. It it affects absolutely every sphere of our lives. So the myth is that it's private and it's isolated, when actually it is, you know, this pervasive cancer that we need to completely address honestly. Let's uh, bring in our first caller, who is uh, Rita. Rita, I'm glad you called. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Well, it's not really a question. I, I want to reinforce uh, some of the points that the speaker has made. Um, I have been a very successful person in my professional life, uh, much more so than the average woman past midlife. And that has only served to reinforce to others around me that I couldn't possibly be being abused. Um, It's something that I learned in my childhood, and most of my adult um, life has reinforced that I must be wrong, I deserve whatever beating I'm getting. Uh, Emotional abuse is not really abuse, which may actually be even worse than the physical abuse because it's harder to detect and show to others. Um, But it's really important to reinforce that it's not just lower income, desperate, unable people who are abused. It has a lot to do with what you believe is the norm, which is what makes it so hard to get out from under. So you were, you were uh, because of the cues that you were receiving from, from society, you, were, you, you had this cognitive distance that Michelle Weldon talked about earlier. Oh, yes. And, you know, I would, I would fight off the people who treated me well because I was so used to being used and abused. Um, and it's only been, you know, nearing my sex, sixth decade in life that I can see clearly how much uh, I allowed this to happen, which doesn't mean I deserved it. It just, uh, it's important to state that, you know, passing up on speaking out about early childhood or teenage and young adult abuses really sets a lifelong pattern. And there were plenty of people in my life who could have spoke up and chose not to. You know, it took me this long to realize I could defend myself. Uh, and uh, finally, Rita, I wonder. Um, there's the important factor. In fact, it's part three in Michelle Weldon's book, "Getting Better: uh, the, the Healing." What? How do you how do you heal from this? Well, for 
long time, I was looking for uh, a therapist or counselor who could help me. And unfortunately, what I found is that many of those people have their own agendas. Because I live in a very small town in Utah, um, I didn't have the option usually of seeing a female counselor. And I I knew there was the possibility of a, a separation because of gender biases. And I very much experienced that with the last guy I was seeing. I stopped going to that two years ago because he was projecting his own relationship on me and defending the guy that I believed I really had to leave in order to live um, and kept telling me that, you know, I could improve my own existence without leaving him. It took me a great... It took me almost three years of therapy in order to be able to see that in him, and I realized that he was also enabling my Mm. abuser. Well, Rita, glad you called. I appreciate you sharing your experience. Yeah, you know what the speaker had said about hearing anyone support your right to leave? That is pivotal. It Mm. was certainly pivotal for me because overwhelmingly everybody told me I could improve the situation and stay in place. It uh, sounds like, Michelle, you wanted to, to engage with our Yeah, Rita, our did yes. you leave the relationship? Pardon me? Did you leave the relationship? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. congratulations. Totally believing that my life was at stake. Hmm. Right. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Rita. Appreciate that. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. We'd appreciate your call as well. 1-800-826-1495. Toll free or upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com. Michelle Weldon is author of I Closed My Eyes. She's one of the keynote speakers at a conference at Southern Utah University. It's happening Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, it's uh, on the SUU campus. It's called Men, Women, and Violence. Everyone Matters. And we're also talking with uh, Alan Wade from Response Back Based Practice. You can find more information there at responsebasedpractice.com. Alan Wade, I wanted to bring you in, and we'll have get response as well from Michelle Weldon. We did have a caller who didn't want to go on the air, but uh, they wanted to follow up on this idea of emotional abuse. And Rita says this can be uh, very, very damaging as well. Well, yeah, if you... <clears throat> Probably most of the people who've been victimized by by violence, if you talk to them in detail and say, you know, they'll they'll tell you that um, the bruises go away, but what he says to you stays with you. You you never forget what he says to you. In other words, often it's the emotional abuse, the humiliation that for the victim is the most lasting and most troubling injury. Um, crimes of violence, whatever else they are, are a humiliation of human dignity and the. The element of humiliation is uh, very intense. Many of us could remember the first time we felt the red-hot sting of humiliation. And many offenders uh, take pains to deliver the violence uh, in such a way that maximizes the humiliation of the victim. This is true in intimate partner violence, but also sexualized assaults, workplace harassment and abuse. So the emotional, psychological, spiritual component of of the abuse is very powerful. Michelle Weldon, uh, anything you'd like to say on, on the emotional abuse? Then I want to uh, uh, to get to how how you got out and and what what your advice to to women would be. Well, um, yes, let me. I, I will address that. It's as you said, the scars you can't see um, that can also be um, deeply ingrained and and deeply harming. Um, I, I understand that completely. I met several women who have spoken to that. Um, how I did get out was. Um, Finally, um, you know, said the truth. There was an incident at, uh, he hurt me worse than he ever had at his parents' summer house in Wisconsin. And it had been two days after um, we were in a counselor's office where he gave our marriage a B plus. And our, our, I, we, at the boys were very small at the time. They were six, four, and one, asleep in another room. And his parents were, you know, two rooms down the hall. And, and, and to me, it was so ridiculously obvious. I said, he feels permission. His own parents are here. And, you know, they get bolder and bolder and bolder. And then I decided this will never get better. I'm going to report it. And I, my, one of my sisters is an attorney. All I had to do was call her. And, uh, you know, she got me um, through it, got with an order of protection, had him removed from the house, um, waited till we got home to Chicago because I knew that I would have to, you know, come back to Wisconsin for the um, 
criminal uh, charge for the police charge, so I waited till we got home and um, then reported it in, in Chicago and started on a path to um, getting out that um, has only really completely been over um, recently, after uh, 18 years. Mm. It took a long time. Well, I was divorced very quickly, but um, and my sons are now 24, 22, and, and 19, and they've had no contact with him for um, nine years. It was his choice, um, no support, no contact at all whatsoever. But he's been, um, he's been bringing me to court for the last three years for failure to pay child support, and we st- settled in December. Hmm. And now it really is over. Yeah. Well. Well. Uh, yeah. I, I think we're all all glad. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Alan Wade, this is uh, your advice for for women who are ready to get out. This can be a dangerous time. Well, it can indeed be a dangerous time. Michelle's already spoken to that quite a bit, I think. And um, there's a couple of other things to keep in mind. <clears throat> and and the caller also spoke to this, which is the the vast majority of victims of violence. Um, report receiving negative social responses, that is, negative responses from other people that could be professionals, they could be family members, they could be friends, when they begin to disclose the abuse. So you'll get people, you might get people treating you like you're stupid, you might get people promising to help you, but not really following through. Um, and what often happens is uh, you might get blamed when you disclose the abuse and try to leave in, in a whole variety of different ways. One of the ways in which the blaming takes place is through by distorting the means uh, or the the real meaning of the crime. So, for example, um, wife assault um, is not a relationship problem. It's a violence problem. And yet it's often recast as a marriage problem or a marital dispute or, you know, a relationship issue in the same way that sexualized assault or rape is recast uh, as a sexual problem where rape has nothing to do with sex. And so, you know, you, when you come forward and you begin to talk about this, sometimes people talk with you about, well, you're in an abusive relationship, um, as though you are part and parcel of the abuse, as though you play a part in it. I mean, no one, no one calls uh, car theft uh, a troubling vehicular relationship, and we shouldn't be calling wife assault uh, a marital problem or an abusive relationship. It's fundamentally not. But for those reasons, uh, people misconstrue and sometimes misinterpret the victim and they misinterpret the actions of the offender. And I also just want to stress that how possible it is for a person to come forward and leave the relationship varies tremendously with their circumstances. For many people, it's absolutely unrealistic and impossible to leave a a violent person uh, for, for many different reasons. Some people absolutely know that if they report to child protection, for example, they will lose their children and uh, the offender will have a better chance of seeing the children than they will. Some people absolutely know that the only way to protect their children is to stay with that person for the time being. So I just want to stress that leaving the person who's abusive is not the only meaningful form of resistance women engage in. Women are always engaged in resisting the abusive behavior in overt and covert ways, and while we want women to be safe and we want women to leave, we have to be careful to not pressure women to leave, because generally speaking, women are the best judges of where they are in that moment. Hmm. You made reference to the fact that there's an imbalance there with with regard to uh, child custody. Under Michelle Weldon, and would give give this to Alan Wade as well. Are are there changes in law that need to be made? Well, you know, unless you you can um, make every judge understand, you know, what is the right thing at the moment. I happen to have. You know, a wonderful judge who saw through everything. Um, I had full custody of of the boys um, immediately, and he was not allowed to have all three at once until he had gone through um, parenting classes. And then, um, you know, there were there were all kinds of um, systems put in place because the judge understood, even though he denied everything, that it was just not true. And even though in um, in court-ordered psychological testing, he said, I was abusive to him and that I abused the children um, and, you know, made all, no one believed him. But there are so many cases I've heard where the, the, the man is believed or the perpetrator is believed and totally goes 
the other way. So I don't know how you make sure that doesn't happen. Mm. Um, I think that might be impossible. There's injustice, you know, on, on every level. But um, just to get, uh, you know, a strong advocate and get people um, in the system who, who believe you, we're we're coming down to the end of the time uh alan wade i wonder uh, of course prevention would be would be best and and since most perpetrators are are men do we we work on educating boys and men what where how do we prevent this well you know i think there's an awful lot we can do to bring uh boys and men into the picture and um you know this is not a problem that we're uh, going to solve um only by the efforts of women you know uh we, we need everybody involved. Everyone needs to be on board. There's lots of things we can begin to do. For example, uh, we can work on a collaborative conflict resolution and peaceful means, means of addressing schoolyard problems in classrooms today so that everyone becomes part of how to handle strong feelings and how to treat other, pe- other people with dignity and respect. There are lots of initiatives that professional sports teams could take, which I think would be um, wonderful to see. We're starting to see a little bit of that now about uh, professional male athletes talking about stopping violence against women. I think that that would be a huge step forward. But there are many ways in which we can bring boys and men further into the picture. There's just a minute left. We'll give the last word to Michelle Weldon. What what, what would you? Uh, I agree completely. Say? It is not a, you know a woman's problem. There there's no gender split here on what needs to be done. You know, as a mother of sons who are now men, it is so important to um, culturally convince young boys and men that violence is not a way to to communicate um and you know we saw in the steubenville ohio rape case how um uh, young men feel that that extreme uh violence is is funny and uh, you know as a culture we have to work on all the messages that we send that um, put women as victims and that um, diminish them you know whether from songs to to TV, to um, movies and, and literature and, and stories and blogs and all that, until we sensitize, you know, all of humanity uh, to see that harming another human being is is wrong, um, I don't think we're really going to move the dial very far. Much more to be said on this topic uh, in Cedar City on Wednesday and Thursday. It's a conference at Southern Utah University, Men, Women, and Violence, Everyone Matters. And the keynote address from Michelle Weldon is um, 7 o'clock in the evening in the Great Hall of the uh, Hunter Conference Center. It's called She is One of Us, the Myths of Domestic Violence. Michelle Weldon is an adjunct assistant professor at uh, Medill School of Journalism at uh, Northwestern University, author of critically acclaimed memoir, I Closed My Eyes. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, Alan Wade is with Response-Based Practice. More information at responsebasedpractice.com, associated with the University of Victoria in British Columbia. His colleague, uh, Catherine Richardson, is giving the other keynote address. Uh, more information at suu.edu slash women and gender studies. Uh, Alan Wade, thank you so much. Thanks very much. And uh, thanks for listening. Uh, by the way, coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to take a look at what government's role in our health should be. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg in New York, his uh, ban on sodas was overturned by the courts, but that's uh, still moving forward. We'll talk with uh, two people very well positioned to talk about this, two doctors who are also uh, legislators, Utah legislature Stuart Barlow and Ed Red, and other guests as well. Access Utah tomorrow. For producers, uh, Danny Hayes and Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening.